I was in a, a room full of leaders. It wasn't at ECV. It wasn't part of the vineyard, the denomination we are. But it was uh, full of religious leaders. And it was a meeting to talk about what God is doing and how to be unified across different denominations in the body of Christ. The meeting, though, was a bit awkward from the beginning because there was a group of people that weren't there. You see, they represented like different churches, different denominations that would be known kind of throughout the world and also particularly to the U.S. So one of the groups that weren't there was the historic black church. Everyone else in many ways but them. We went through this meeting, different agenda points, doing, you know, notes about money, the organization, you know, just regular stuff in a board meeting. And then we got to a point where there was a letter that was written, a letter from these missing voices. They had something to say, apparently. And the letter was read, and it was specifically about really the difficulty of going places, doing gatherings, and not having certain history be talked about. So thinking about going to the South and not mentioning something like slavery, something like that, right? So this was in the letter. And at the very end, there was a call to action, not prescribing what it was, but saying, let's act differently together. That was it. Someone then shared, hmm, this letter, I don't know the spirit in which it was written. This person that was clearly behind it, you know, we know they had issues with this leader. We know that they were really against this person. We don't really know how to respond. It's kind of a weird response for someone that was so general, like to focus on the person that wrote it. And someone else around the circle, who happened to be a black woman that represented the Catholic family of churches, just kind of put her hand up and said, that seems oddly personal to say, uh-oh. If you've been in a meeting where people are being polite, but you know like the gauntlet is being thrown down, that was this part of the meeting. And so someone then gets up and says, no. No, that is unacceptable. That is unacceptable. It's unacceptable for me to be called a racist, which I, I don't think she did. <laughs> it's unacceptable for me to be called a racist. This family of faith that I belong to, we marched with, yes, with Dr. King, not lying. And so it, it's not okay, and you will not do this again. You will not call me that. I don't think she did. Sometimes in these kinds of meetings, it's really odd because you actually just don't know what to do. Like no one knows what to do. Like I'm sure God does, but we didn't, and we're like these Christian leaders. And so we're just wondering, like, what happens next? And so finally we go back to the letter that was written. I don't think there was any calling someone of a racist. It was just actually saying it's hard to be in places that have history that matters and to have that history not be talked about. And it's something that we want to address or uh, kind of do action on further. So that was kind of stated in the room. And so we're like, hmm. Maybe we'll think about that, the fact that there wasn't a call out or no one said something like that. That person never really got confronted about what they did, but it was kind of clear something was off a bit. It's easy to hear that and to focus on that one person that said, it is unacceptable and you will never. 
and to make fun of them or to laugh or to even be shocked or like, ah, how could they? But I wonder if we're honest and if we use something called a mirror, <laughs> how often we might be in a similar position saying, I did not do that. That's not who I am. You will never call me that again. And if you do, I'm gone. When I think about my own life, when I think about my own marriage, how many times do I lead with, I don't do that. I just don't. And you won't say that again to me, will you? How many times when I talk to my kids, who are thankfully are downstairs, you know, stop doing that. that no, I did not take that from you. No, I haven't been that all day. You've been that. How many times have I just done that to them? Or to close friends? Or as a leader in this church? How many times have I said, you will not, you will never? That's not what happened. Have you done something like that? It's easy to say that we don't sin that we're not wrong. To justify any amount of anything with blame shifting, blaming someone else or a different group. That, this isn't a Christian thing to do, and it's not a non-Christian thing to do. It's simply a human thing to do. If we're honest, we all struggle with what we do about the fact that we mess up a lot. The fact that we sin. Our sin is everywhere. In the world, in our city, in our communities, families, and in our hearts. And that's not a good thing, however casual we might want to be about such matters. It's not a good thing that it's everywhere. When we look at God's story, we see pretty clearly sin is bad. Sin is bad. It might make us struggle, but sometimes we don't necessarily act like that. But it's not great. It's all over God's story. We can see it in the garden, in this moment of disobedience, where there's a, a command to do things a certain way, and it's disobeyed. There's not a trust of God's loving care over humanity. Or what happens throughout a lot of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, there's a sin of idolatry as Israel tries to be like other nations, getting lost in being faithful to God, specifically when being faithful means it's hard, it's difficult, it's not easy, and then the success of other nations. Getting caught up between faithfulness to God, which doesn't look like maybe what we'd want to do, and then the success that we see in others that we want to emulate that can become idolatry. And then simply the sin of not trusting Jesus as a leader, being selfish to make ourselves Lord, master, leader, instead of living under the leadership of Jesus, following his ways. Later in the story of God, after the garden, after the nation commits all these acts of idolatry, after Jesus, there's this person named Paul, a church planner, that had a radical intervention from his sinful ways, and he puts it this way. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death. The ways of sin, 
like what it is. It's, it's actually mixed up with death and dying. But there is this gift, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This seems serious. Serious enough that we should know what sin is. So what exactly is it? You know, when we look at Scripture, there's two maybe simple ways to think about it. The first is just really what it means. Sin just means something that's wrong. Missing the mark is usually kind of one of the ways we kind of gloss it over at ECV. Like, what does it mean, sin? Well, it means to do something wrong, to miss the mark towards God, others, and creation, where we fall short of being a human being the way that God has intended. But it's not just a wrong that we do, or a wrong that's done to us, or a series of wrongs maybe we perpetuate throughout time, throughout cultures. It's also a power. It's a... Do you mind tapping that? We'll see if this works. Uh, It's a power. It's a personal force driving us to act out the worst of who we are. You know, people often see this coming up in the writings of Paul, but actually we see it as clearly as Cain killing Abel, one of the early stories in uh, the life uh, of the people of God at the beginning. It says this in Genesis chapter 4, 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See here that it's not, but if you do not do what is right, you sin, then it's sin is actually the thing, right? Sin is what's crouching, as if it's a person waiting for us. And this is one of those moments where, you know, time is money, I guess some people say. I have a few other things I'd like to say today. But really, it's all here. Because in the early story of God, what is God doing? He's drawing one of his people into conversation. He's noticing the emotion and saying, you're angry, you're downcast. He's giving an opportunity for a kind of relationship, even repentance from that emotional sin or turmoil. And he says wisdom, wise words, because there's something that's gonna get you. It really is desiring you, waiting to devour you, but there's a way to rule over it. There's a way out. One of the questions we've got to ask ourselves today is, what is that way out? Do you know what it is? Can you do it on your own? Or do you need some help? Do you need some help getting a way out of your own mistakes, your own patterns of wrongdoing, turmoil you're in for relationships? Do you need a way out today? Or are you fine? Because if you need a way out, We have a God who actually is concerned about us. Before we even make a mistake, he's curious about your mood, about what's getting you upset. He wants to draw you into relationship. But we can ignore that compassionate call, avoid that God. But then it looks like we have sin instead, crouching at our door, desiring to have us, us not ruling over it. Sin is a wrong, and it's a power. It's also contested. Even in a secularizing society, we are very, uh, I think, mindful. We are very uh, obsessed sometimes with what is and isn't considered sin or wrong. Whether it's voting for a certain elected official, no names right now, 
still early, I guess, maybe, right? So is that sin? Is letting the earth burn sin? Is hoarding wealth that no one could spend, of course, in a non-cryogenically assisted lifetime, uh, is, are those things sins? Or maybe it's antiquated sexual standards, not forgiving those who hurt you, not acknowledging the name of Jesus. Are those things wrong? Religious or not, we all have our laws and standards. Religious or not, we all have thoughts about missing the mark, about sin. I want to invite Jesus in to help us approach this with all of our baggage, the stuff that we maybe have ourselves, the stuff that other people have given us. Thank you for that. Uh, No thank you, but we have it anyway. We want to receive what God has for us today. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you be here today, Lord? Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that you are close to us, that you are kind towards us, and that you have such incredible power. You have power over wrong, over sin, over death. And I pray that that power be on display today, somehow, whether it's through these words or worship, something someone says to us in the room. Lord, be powerful amongst us today to let us know that there's hope, there's life, and there's love in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, uh, we're going to look at three things as we look at a parable from Jesus and a few parts of his life, some stories, and it's this. I'm going to have to click a few times here. Uh, the first is that sin is bad, as we said, but being a sinner is our reality right now. Not fun, but it's true. Second, don't leave the room, please. Jesus died to not make a big deal out of your sin. This one's a little controversial. There's a first point. Please, don't strategically leave. Three, the way out of our sin is honesty, vulnerability, and confession. Sin is bad, but being a sinner is a reality and our reality right now. Jesus died to not make a big deal out of your sin. And three, the way out of our sin is honesty, vulnerability, and confession to Jesus. Turns out that saying sin is bad, particularly maybe that your sin is bad, doesn't really inspire us to change. Do you guys get that? Like when someone just says, like, hey, like you're doing something wrong, or that is bad, uh, I don't think that's had great impact in the world for the cessation of sin. I just don't think it has. Yet Jesus has some very clear counsel for us as we struggle with sin. It's bad, not just theirs, but also yours. Presenting sin to God in humility matters. And having a practice to bring your sin to the light gives you something. It doesn't just give you a way of life with that practice, but it actually gives you freedom. Freedom to actually live, capital L, live. A life of freedom. Now here's our main scripture for today. It's a parable Jesus uses when he's with other people, namely the tax collectors. We just did this sermon series on hospitality, on being warmed by God than to go to others. Jesus is doing that, and he's with a lot of people, and people are getting Jesus in trouble, essentially. They're saying, dude, you're always with these tax collectors. You're always with sinners. 
doesn't that mean that that's who you are? And so Jesus, in a moment where that happens again, he says this parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious expert, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Exactly. (laughs) But the tax collector stood at a distance, far off. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says these words. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's that word justified, which for so many of us is what we want. It's what we want in relationships. I want to be justified to be right. I want to be justified that I'm okay, that I've got what I need. And here Jesus says, here's the way you get that. Not by praying these prayers of, thank God I'm not like them, but instead to humble yourself, to bow down and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Completely unaware that someone was just a huge jerk to him. I guess in the parable, right? But that was, that was mean. But he doesn't say anything about that because he's actually caught up in his own story, in his own intimacy with God. The haters didn't even have a chance. So let's unpack the first one. Sin is bad. Being a sinner is reality. I think here we can see that both the Pharisee and the tax collector agree that sin is bad. The Pharisee only sees it in others, though. This is a good kind of like... Um, check for us. When we think about sin, are we usually thinking about other people's or our own? When we're thinking about mistakes and wrongs, are we usually thinking about maybe a a candidate we don't like, a country, a culture, a person, someone at a workplace, a school? Are we thinking about our own mistakes? You don't have to answer out loud, but I hope that the Spirit's kind of searching you now. Just what is it for you, even this week, even today? Sin is not great, and it's not just out there in the world or out there in others. It's in us. We all have to respond somehow to that reality. Will we do so with humility or we do so with self-justification? In our culture today, we definitely still are kind of caught up in this. Again, even non-religious culture is. We just might not call things sin, In fundamentalist circles, whether it's religious or secular, the danger becomes when we only call out others, not ourselves. And when we don't see our sin, we don't see our own sin, even as we label other people as the sinners, the ones who are bad. We're all doing it, whether we're using religious language or not. And when we cancel wrongdoers without counseling ourselves, we actually are just lying. It's just simply not true, even if it is convenient. The tax collector, remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, it's like a gangster figure that's extorting money from the, uh, the people of Israel. So they're seen as really bad guys, and they're not just doing a job like, you know, an IRS agent. They're actually, although some of you might have some thoughts about that too, but they're, they're not just doing a job. They're really kind of getting a, a leg up on people. 
They're being corrupt. But this tax collector is following the Jesus way by appealing for mercy in his sin. And the Pharisee, in his pointing towards others, he produces one of the worst consequences of not bringing our sin to God or pointing out other people's sin, which is shame. He's saying, I thank God so much that I'm not like them. That he's just not like someone else. Like another group. What happens when you do that? You end up shaming someone just for being who they are. The tax collector is thinking about what he needs, mercy. The Pharisees are saying, thank God I'm not like that person. This shame loses the whole point of sin, where sin is about missing the mark or sensing a power's pull to do wrong. Shame simply says, you are the missed mark. You are the wrong. There's no way out of shame. It's suffocating. Wouldn't this Pharisee love to see the tax collector, to see himself as the problem, instead of doing what the tax collector is doing, bringing his problems to God? The tax collector is actually bringing things to God, bringing himself to God. But this Pharisee is just really talking to God about him. Sometimes I wonder, in our culture, where it's so easy to talk about them, whoever them is, if we're really just uh, really not talking about sin anymore, but just talking about shame that we're putting on people, people who we think are the wrong people. Now, I said that this is something that secular and church folk do alike. I think that's true. We have to be honest that the church has done that time and time again. We've gotten lazy not telling people to bring what they think is true about the way they've wronged someone to God. And instead, we've just said a whole category or categories of people are wrong. We've done that along lines of gender, around sexuality. We've done that, and especially in uh, uh, more ancient time, years and years ago, with just kids themselves. We've said this category of people can't know God, can't be like God. We've let shame do the work. But it turns out Jesus has no interest in receiving that. We can still humble ourselves and go to God ourselves and say, God, we need you. And we can avoid doing what we see the Pharisee do, which is say, they are wrong, they are wrong, they are wrong. If that's what the church is doing, I don't think we're really tackling sin in an effective way at all. Because what are we called to do? To look at our own sin to deal with it honestly before God, to not shame others, but to invite God's mercy into our reality. Second thing, it's related. Jesus died to not make a big deal out of your sin. This, I think, is what the, Pharise- this is what the tax collector was talking about. It's this mercy that we see, the love of God. If we notice, the Pharisee doesn't ask for anything. I think his whole prayer seems to be a performance. That's exactly what he wants. But the tax collector does ask for something. He asks for mercy from God. It turns out that God has had a plan for that all along. Several years ago, a man named Jordan Sang came to our church and was to do an equipping conference on the Holy Spirit. We were meant to be talking about healing and deliverance, all this good stuff. But when he came to us, he kind of saw the questions we were asking about the work of the Spirit, and he said, hey, um, what do you think the cross is all about? I forget who answered. Um, I don't have a copy of that on transcript. 
but it made him concerned. Let's just say that. And he's like, don't you know that Jesus died not to make a big deal out of your sin? There's a love that he gave that was for forgiveness. There was grace. There was mercy. There was an outpouring of good stuff that he dealt with so you could actually be clean and free and honest before God in Christ, not of your own accord. Of course not. But it feels like you all like are trying to earn something. Like you all are trying to do the right thing so much that you all just want to know like what's the way to be better. And that's really not the way of Jesus. And we were like, did this guest speaker just come in and say we're doing everything wrong? But we want to do what's right. Wait, that's what he said. Oh, dang it. Like, we actually were kind of like found out by him. And he just prayed like God's love over us. And like a lot of stuff happened in the Holy Spirit, including deliverance. But the, what he was saying is there's something Jesus has already done. There's something Jesus did hard work around that gave us access, that gave us friendship, that gave us mercy and grace. And all we have to do is receive it. Now, how do we receive it? I think we say we need it. We want it. We turn from something and say, God, I need mercy from you. I'm a sinner, and I need more of what you have for me. I think that's it. We work a lot as a community, both in this church, definitely in this city, I think even as Americans, we work a lot to be enough, to be good, to be right. And maybe that changes as you cross state lines, as you cross Yale and New Haven, as you cross political party or preference. Maybe it changes like what makes you a good person, but so many of us are invested in that. And I think Jesus is saying, just confess. Just confess what's not working well and ask for mercy and I will be your enough. You can get out of the rat race. Like, it's called that for a reason. You don't need to try to be better because you're already mine. When we think our sin keeps us from God and, we, and the love of God, we rob the cross of its power and we become extremely defensive. Jesus died to get close to us and our own sin can't stop God from coming to us. Now, it may inhibit us from recognizing God. Maybe it makes our step a little slower but it doesn't really do anything to God and his ability to love us. God will not let our sin keep him from his rescue plan for us. That's kind of the whole point, y'all, of God coming down from heaven, taking on the form of a human, living, loving, freeing, forgiving, and then by our own hand, we kill him. He dies only to come back and love us still instead of exacting revenge or punishment. If he didn't have revenge or punishment on the people that literally killed him, why would he have that on us? And yet so many of us struggle with, no, I'm not, I'm not a sinner, though. That wasn't sin. I, I've got to justify myself. Why think Jesus would just say, just, just let it go. Sometimes we do that. It's unacceptable. I will never. <laughs> you guys are cracking up over that. <laughs> and I think Jesus would say, dude, it's okay. I'm not MSNBC. Like, you can say you're a racist. I still love you. Is that too real? Like, it's okay. You can say you hurt your friend. Like, I don't know if they'll be friends with you again, but you're still good with me, and you can still restore that friendship. You'll need God's power. 
But guess what? I got that for you. It doesn't matter what scandal you think you have in your sin. It doesn't matter what things you think you're transgressing through it. God's love is still enough. Jesus' death is still enough. No matter what someone says, no matter what culture says, that doesn't mean that you are justified in doing it, but it just means that the truth of the gospel is still true for you. The same person that wrote The Wages of Sin is Death killed Jesus' early best friends. He knew the way of grace. The question is, will we know it ourselves? Love was not through with us then, and the love of God is not through with us now. Mercy is real. And I think this is something that needs to press into our realities a little bit more. I think about some of the dynamics in my own marriage. <laughs> the ways that when things come up, I get a little heated. You know, when someone says, like, I don't really like the tone of your voice. Well, I don't know. I guess I am a monster then. Tina's like, I didn't call you a monster, but you did. No, I actually think she just said something impacted her, right? And she doesn't want that impact. But I have a way of making that even bigger to then dismiss it. Anyone else do that? You make it like, well, I thought I was. Well, okay, I guess you said we inflate the sin that we don't want to admit anyway to just say, well, that's clearly not what we're doing. Instead of taking someone at their word and saying, can you tell me more about what impacted you? Because we're unafraid to bring our sin to God. Because bringing our sin to God doesn't mean that we have to receive shame. It just means that we might have sinned. We might have wronged. And honestly, we should probably be not that uh, caught up in the might. We probably just did. And we can still be restored by God, even by our friend, our loved one. But we have to let go of the defenses. This is painful, and yet there's a way forward even in pain. Church, we can't be defensive about our sin. When we do, it leads to other things that are malformed, usually us denying the sin altogether, us saying it isn't an issue. That's not real. That person's just sensitive. We get into more trouble instead of just owning it and saying, you know what? I think that's something I do need to pray about. That's something that I do need to check my anger, my irritability, the ways that I just don't take responsibility. What's the worst that could happen? I think God just talking to us be like, <laughs> God just talking to us and saying, hey, like, that's something you need to work on. Or God even saying, hey, I want to really walk this one with you because it's going to be hard. There's a lot of stuff that's going to come up in your story through this, but I want to be with you as you confess sin as you seek restoration. Let's not be defensive about our sin. Last point. The way out is honesty, vulnerability, and confession. The Pharisee only confesses about other people's sin. You notice that? He's like, I will have a confession about the adulterers, the tax collectors. Like, come on, guy. He doesn't confess his own. And there's a lot of vulnerability in doing that. But we also see the tax collector does that. And he in the story is the only one justified. Jesus is saying he's justified. It's not the religious man. God doesn't demand perfection. He wants honesty and dependence. 
We see that in this beautiful scripture about uh, how to deal with sin as it comes up. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I love this passage. It's actually really practical. Like, even if you have a little bit of something in your vision, right, you want to get that checked out. Because who knows, like, what you think is a plank might just be, like, I don't know, colored eye contact, something like that, something different, right? No, there's a way that we need to actually receive wisdom here. Whatever we're struggling with, let's treat it as a log. Knowing our doctor, our healer, is Jesus. He's going to know how to take care of it. Even if we think maybe it's a speck, or someone else says it's a speck, or our culture says that, what if we just treat the stuff that's coming up in our own lives with God as serious, as important? Because we know God loves us. We know God cares for us. Remember, we don't have to accept this reality that our sin keeps us from God. Don't think that's true. I think God loves us even in our sin and rescues us, comes towards us. So we can say, God, I don't even know if something's going on, but can you help me? Can you address me? I love that part. I already said it spoiled the whole sermon with Cain. Hey, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? We have a God that's invested in our emotions even before we make maybe a bad action out of them. Let's talk with that God. One last story before we move to a time of invitation and prayer. One thing that really changed the way I see sin was hanging out with folk who live outside, folk who struggle with homelessness, folk who struggle with chemical addiction. All of a sudden, the gospel that I had been living, which I was hoping was the Jesus way, kind of got found out as a little bit deficient. Why do I say that? Because there were people that I was walking with week in and week out who were struggling with something they felt they couldn't control. Drinking too much, maybe using substances, but they felt like, God, I want you to be with me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And I realized that so much of the way I dealt with sin was just not sinning again. Anyone else might be like that? Hey, I have a way of dealing with sin. You know, I know there's God and he's good and he forgives us, but I have like this way of like just never sinning again. And some of us, when we're religious people, which again, I don't think just means church people or Christians, but religious people, we say, well, if we have a problem, what do we do? We make sure the problem goes away. We make sure we never do it again. We try to help ourselves. We try to get better. And it turns out getting better, helping ourselves, stopping something, that's not the gospel. As much as it would be convenient if all those things happened. The gospel is rescue. It's relationship. It's being held in compassionate care. There were people that I was with at this ministry that were going to drink that night, that were going to actually fall off their sobriety that week. But guess what? That day, in that service, their confession that they wanted actually a way out, that they didn't want to ruin their relationships anymore, that they wanted something so different that confession mattered because it put them on a, a, a ground of humility. And what they didn't need in that moment was perfection. Does that make sense to y'all? They didn't need to be perfect. 
They didn't need to be righteous in terms of their behavior. What they needed to do was be honest. I'm struggling with this. I don't see a way out. I don't know if it will get better. I hope that your power will change it. But until then, all I can do is say, I'm a sinner. Heal me. Love me. Forgive me. How many times have we not said those words because we were hoping that we could just fix it? Not do it. Avoid it. That's not the way that God has. And as I was in that ministry, I saw something happen. People that weren't chemically addicted, we were changing because we realized, actually, I think that's the gospel. And there's a freedom in just acknowledging that we're broken without trying to fix ourselves. We saw people who were far from faith, people who were atheistic or agnostic. Uh, some people were Yale students. And they said, actually, around these people, I know I can believe in a God because it's not about my behavior. It's about God's love for me. One of the things that was really damning and hard, but again, if you're just holding it, you can hold it, where some of those people came around ECV, they're like, oh, I don't know about this community. But then around this other one, they're like, oh, I can actually be a sinner here because it doesn't feel like we're having to figure all these things out or trying to get better. They just saw a rawness of God's love changing people even before God's love changed their behavior at all. God was just with them. Some of those people were able to confess sins that they hadn't really even maybe seen as wrong. Chronic pornography use, control that they had, pride. They're able to say, I actually just want to put that down now and say, God, address me, heal me, forgive me. Like when they thought they had to be better or like get it together, it was almost like they didn't want to admit those were sins, right? But once they knew that they could just ask God for help or mercy, then they're like, I think I'm in. And it was folks who were living outside who taught them that, who said, I actually really have no other way. I'm chemically addicted. Like if I want God's grace, I just got to get God's grace. I don't know if my behavior will change. I need a miracle for that. And God's in those miracles. So our transformation starts with these words, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the words of the tax collector. It's also very similar to the Jesus prayer, which is the next slide. It says, Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. I just added beloved, a beloved sinner. Because sometimes it really is hard for us to get over a sinner meaning wrong. Right? We just can't accept that because of ways people have maybe wronged us in the church, whether we have religious trauma, whether someone has said because of who we are that we're wrong. So I had a beloved because we need to know that we are loved even as we're people who are imperfect. But we have to ask for mercy because God wants to give us that mercy. In a little bit, we're going to have a time of response. It's a way for us to respond to God and to what God's doing because God is living, God is at work, and God is amongst us. And that God is perfect, is holy, is worthy to be worshipped. And we are not. And that's okay. We are folk who struggle with sin. And that's the reality. We don't need to be ashamed because of that. We actually can go to our knees because of that. When we confess, things happen. Some of you all know uh, the event that happened last year, I think around this time, at Asbury, where there was kind of this renewal and outpouring of worship and prayer. And that started with repentance. Just people repenting and confessing sin. They felt free enough to do that. 
So they started, and they didn't stop for a while. God was there, always. But what changed was they felt like, actually, we think God is in a good mood. We think God's able to hear these confessions. We think God is faithful to forgive. And I think knowing that, something changed amongst them. And their hearts were ready to pour out and cry out in worship, saying, Father, forgive us. Here's a few invitations for us this week to make it practical. First is confess sin. We'll have an opportunity to do that even today. You can do that in your seat. You can do that at the kneelers that are set up if you want to. You can do that on the side when we have prayer ministers. You can say, hey, I've never done this before, but I'd like to just confess sin. Can I do that in front of you, before you? That prayer minister will say, yes. You can say, I confess. I've been struggling with blank. That's all you have to do. I confess. I've done X. And the person will stand with you and say, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you give my friend forgiveness and wholeness? Would you restore them? Let them know they're not defined by being perfect, but they're defined by reaching you and relating to you. So if you want that, you can have that in just even a few minutes. Next, remain in God's love. Know that God loves us and have a practice of knowing and experiencing God's love. Maybe it's a worship song. Maybe it's just asking God. Because when we're dealing with sin, the enemy loves to take our sin and to accuse us of it when God would just want us so badly just to take it and say, we're going to throw that down at your feet, Jesus. So make sure God's love stays in the mix. And last one, tell the gospel story of your sin. What does this one mean? It means that your story of the sin isn't, I just don't want to do this anymore. I want to avoid it. I want to get better. That's not the gospel story. Healing is a gospel story. Friendship is a gospel story. Receiving mercy is a gospel story. So be careful about the ways you talk about your own sin. So you don't think it's just behavior management or sin management. That's not what the gospel is. It's freedom. And if you're defining your freedom based on how you're doing, I mean, you can do that if you want, but God doesn't need you to. He just wants to release something over you. And that's what we're going to do right now is just ask for the Lord to release something over us. We're going to actually ask the Lord to release mercy, the love of God, God's kindness. Mercy is simply God's kindness in abundance that he gives to us when we ever have wrong or when we have lack. That's what mercy means. It's a special form of God's love. And I'm going to ask us to receive that today. It says in the word of God that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, to sorrow, to wanting to seek something different for ourselves. So we're just going to actually invite God's mercy here to see what will happen. I'd love us all to stand, if you're able to do that. And I want the worship team to come up, please. So I want to invite the Holy Spirit to minister to us in this way. Then we're going to have a few more prophetic words um, that people have heard during our gathering to help see how we'll minister. And then we'll worship. I want you just to take uh, kind of a notice of your body. Whatever would help you get into a position of openness and to receiving. Just do that. Because that's actually what it's all about. Receiving from God. Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, come. 
Thank you, God, that you're in a good mood. That you know our sin, that you see it, and yet you love us and you're with us even right now. I feel like there's some people that have just felt conviction, just a sense of a way that something is going in their life actually isn't like uh, what God would want. It's missing the mark. I feel like God wants us to come alongside that with love and with mercy. So release mercy, God, especially where there's been uh, conviction and maybe even accusation where the enemy has tried to sow in even already. Mercy be released. I also feel like there's wounds that some people have from that game of just trying, trying to be better, trying to be enough. I feel like some of this, it's a, a chronic pattern of sin that you've tried to kind of defeat, but you're just wounded from it. You just feel like ashamed. And I think others of you, you wouldn't label it sin, but now thinking about this pattern of, oh, I've tried to be enough, I've tried to be right, you realize you've been exhausted through your performance. I just pray God's mercy would meet you. Mercy, Lord, where we're tired. Mercy, would you come? before we um, hear some other prophetic words, I just want us to wait a little bit just for the Spirit to come even deeper. Yeah, Holy Spirit, minister. As we're praying, I just get this sense that the Lord wants to highlight identity. I feel like there's people that are really struggle with shame. I feel like the Lord is just saying that he wants freedom for you. And see, if you're someone, especially if it's like before today, you've struggled with shame, feeling that you just are bad for anything. I feel like the Lord wants to write a new story and wants you to come and get prayer to receive hope and to have that shame rubbed off, almost like a cleansing bath. So Holy Spirit, continue to minister.